Welcome to Cancer Connect Workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star event zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Senior Director of Education and Training. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much today. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's program. And today's program is a partnership between the Longevity Foundation and Cancer Care. And we're delighted to partner with them. Indeed, we partner with them on every lung cancer program or lung cancer-related program that we do. Um, so you'll be hearing uh, later on from a representative from the Lung Longevity Foundation. And today's program is called For Caregivers, Practical Tips to Cope with Your Loved One's Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer. And this is part two of Living with Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer. And today's program is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb, Regeneron, Sanofi Genzymes, Turning Point Therapeutics, Inc., and a grant from Genentech. And I really want to thank them for their support of today's program. We have lots of you on the program today. There's over 105 participants on the call today. And you come from all of the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from Lithuania and the United Kingdom. So it's really a global call as well. And it's a pleasure to have all of you on the call today. You are clearly a group of information seekers. Now, before I introduce our first speaker, um, I would like to ask you all just a few questions. And... The reason for that is we'd like to get a sense of what you know before the program starts. Um, so I'm going to, and it will help us to tailor these programs to meet your needs um, as best as possible. So I'm going to begin with our first question. And those of you who are live streaming the program, you'll be able to see the questions and you'll be able to rate your answers as well. So on a scale of one to five, with one the highest rating and five the lowest rating, please select your rating. I understand the current standard of care for non-small cell lung cancer in the context of COVID-19 and its variants. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand the role of a caregiver their role in decision-making and the challenges and opportunities in communicating with the healthcare team for a loved one with non-small cell lung cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand managing family and friends in the context of COVID-19 during special occasions, birthdays and holidays. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now just two questions left. I understand the role of the long distance caregiver for a loved one living with non-small cell lung cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And this will be the last question. I understand stress management and self-care tips for managing the stress of caregiving. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. 
So I'd like to thank you all for participating in these questions. It really helps us, again, to tailor the programs in 2022 to best meet your needs. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Joshua Sabari. Dr. Sabari is attending physician, thoracic, medical oncology, assistant professor of medicine, NYU Langone Health, Perlmutter Cancer Center. And Dr. Sabari will be addressing an overview of non-small cell lung cancer and current standard of care in the context of COVID-19 experience, the important role of the caregiver in decision-making for a loved one with non-small cell lung cancer, challenges and opportunities in communicating with the healthcare team, coping with comorbid health concerns, and strategies for adherence by caregivers. It's really my pleasure to introduce our, my esteemed colleague, Dr. Sabari. Thank you, Dr. Mesner, for having me, and, and thank you, everyone, and look forward to a really rich uh, and robust discussion and, and questions today. So like Dr. Mesner mentioned, I'd, I'd like to start off by giving a broad overview of how I think about non-small cell lung cancer and broadly uh, what the treatments are. Again, for any specific advice regarding your loved one care, care or your care, I really recommend talking to your clinician, your, your healthcare team. Uh, we'll also discuss the context of non-small cell lung cancer and its treatment uh, with obviously the COVID-19 era that we currently are in. Uh, and, and I really wanna focus on what can the caregiver do uh, in the decision-making process for their loved one with non-small cell lung cancer. So just to start, you know, non-small cell lung cancer or lung cancer in general is quite common, right? 236,000 patients a year diagnosed here in the United States and worldwide over 1.5 million people diagnosed. And, you know, it's a common stigma to think that lung cancer only occurs in folks who have smoked in the past. And really what I tell patients is that all you need is a set of lungs to develop lung cancer. So cancer can occur in those who've smoked. It can also occur in those who've never smoked. Uh, and, and we think about this type of disease differently in different patient populations. So the first thing I'd recommend is that in a history or in the history of somebody who has smoked in the past, we've done a lot at preventing lung cancer or identifying lung cancer early and preventing it from going to other places of the body. So the United States Preventative Service Task Force has recommended annual low-dose CT screening uh, for patients who are 50 to 80 years old who have a history of smoking 20 pack years or more. Uh, and the recommendation here is an annual low-dose CT scan, meaning that if we can identify these nodules early before they become malignant or cancerous, these can be removed and we could potentially, you know, save folks from developing uh, more progressed disease. When we think about lung cancer, though, we usually break it up into two subsets, non-small cell, which we'll be focusing on today, as well as small cell. Small cell is a more aggressive form of lung cancer. It's relatively rare. It happens in about 15% of patients. So 30, 35,000 patients a year in the United States develop small cell. But non-small cell lung cancer, which we're gonna focus on today, is by far and away the more common type of lung cancer that we see. Upwards of 200,000 patients a year diagnosed here in the United States. And non-small cell lung cancer is a really broad terminology. And really, simply what it means is under the microscope, the cancer cells look normal in size. Whereas small cell lung cancer, the cancer cells actually look really small uh, in size. So when we're thinking of non-small cell lung cancer, it's a broad category of different types of lung cancer. 
The most common subtype in non-small cell lung cancer is adenocarcinoma or a gland cancer, a cancer that arises from a cell in the lung that produces mucus. Uh, and you can see gland cancers arise in different types of organs in the body. And the reason that we know in potential patients it's a lung cancer is we do specific tests or stains to identify that that cancer started, originated in the lung, and potentially may have learned to spread to other places of the body. So it's really important when you talk to your oncologist, your healthcare team, and especially the caregiver, to really understand sometimes people are diagnosed with cancer that is elsewhere in the body. For example, the bone or the liver, but it's important to understand where did that cancer start, and that defines the treatment type. So even if a biopsy is done of the liver, it might have originated or started in the lung. And understanding that process with your, your team is going to be critical to help guide the treatment. So adenocarcinoma or gland cancer is the most common subtype of non-small cell lung cancer. The second most common subtype is squamous cell cancer. And these are cancers that arise in cells that are closer to the middle part of the chest. We call them more epithelial or lining type cells. Um, and again, it's important to differentiate and distinguish which subtype or histology. So when talking to your medical oncologist, your team as a family member, as a loved one, as a caregiver, understanding number one, what is the histology? Meaning what does this cancer look like under the microscope? The second really important thing is to understand the stage. And when we talk about stage, what we're talking about is where did the cancer start and where has the cancer gone in the body? If the cancer started in the lung and stayed in the lung, we would call that a stage one or two cancer. And folks with that diagnosis are often going to go to the operating room to have a resection. In patients who have more advanced cancer, where the cancer starts in the lung and potentially learns to travel to lymph nodes in the middle part of the chest, that might be referred to as a stage three cancer. And cancers that start in the lung and learn how to travel through the blood to other places in the body, like the lung, for ex uh, excuse me, the liver, for example, or the bone or the brain, we would call that stage four uh, lung cancer. And the treatments differ. In someone with a stage four lung cancer, surgery or radiation will not be curative, right? Will not get rid of the disease completely. And we really need to think about treatments that can go all over the body to treat the cancer in the different locations in the body. So I really wanna focus on the stage four or advanced cancer here for the rest of the talk when we, when we talk about the treatment strategies here. So in someone with a stage four cancer, it's critical uh, to obtain a biopsy, right? To obtain a piece of tissue to understand the histology, and we mentioned earlier, histology means what it looks like under the microscope, uh, whether this is non-small cell or small cell, and if it's small cell, whether it's adenocarcinoma, gland cancer, or a squamous cancer. And once we define that, the next critical piece of information is to understand what is causing that cancer to tick. And we refer to that as the biomarkers or mutations. And mutations are specific abnormalities, generally not inherited from mom and dad, but are acquired from the environment. Could be from smoking, could be from pollution, could be from other exposures. But it's critical to identify and understand what abnormality is causing your cancer or your loved one's cancer to tick. 
we have over 11 different alterations or mutations that we have matched targeted therapy. Seven or now eight are FDA approved. And the others, there are clinical trials available. So as a care caregiver, a loved one, please ask your family's uh, um, uh, um, team, ask your, 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 your healthcare provider's team, what is the driver mutation or what is causing my cancer to tick? Because if we identify that, there are many targeted therapies that are approved. Just for one example, there is an explosion of new therapies available for one specific alteration, KRAS-G12C. And this alteration occurs in about 14% of patients with non-small cell lung cancer. Uh, so there are many therapies now that are entering uh, for patients that are not only prolonging patients' lives, but also allowing patients to live better and have better quality of life. So again, understanding what mutation causes your cancer to tick or grow is very useful uh, in your treatment paradigm. Now, we can do this by getting genetic material from the biopsy, the tissue itself, but we can also do this from obtaining a blood sample called a liquid biopsy. I would recommend doing these in, in sort of uh, compendium together because it gives us a lot of information about what might be going on in you or a loved one. If we're not able to identify a mutation or an abnormality that's driving the cancer, the next thing that we look at is a different biomarker called PDL1. And it's an acronym and it stands for Program Death Ligand 1. And in English, all it means is it's whether your cancer or your loved one's cancer is wearing a cloak or a disguise that's preventing the immune system from recognizing and attacking the cancer. And if we have a high level of cloak or disguise on our cancer, we know that immunotherapy medications might work really well at removing that cloak or disguise and allowing the immune system to better recognize and attack cancer. I oftentimes get the question here, what if you have a mutation, uh, an, an abnormality like KRAS or EGFR more commonly, but you also have a high PDL1, a high cloak or disguise? Talk to your physician, talk to your care team, but I generally recommend targeting or attacking the mutation first if you can, followed by then falling down to other standard therapies like immunotherapy or chemotherapy. We can oftentimes talk about chemotherapy as well in this scenario, uh, and we can give chemotherapy to patients, but we know that chemotherapy has some side effects, and we prefer to limit side effects in folks who have lung cancer. So interestingly, if patients have a high cloak or disguise, a high PDL1 expression, we recommend immunotherapy alone, as the chances of that medicine working are quite high. But if folks have a low level of disguise or a low PDL1 expression, less than 50% or zero negative, we generally are recommending combination of chemotherapy and immunotherapy together. So now we're in the COVID-19 era, and it's been difficult, I would say, to treat patients um, with chemotherapy because patients are concerned about being exposed. We also know that some of the chemotherapies can suppress the immune system. It can lower our ability to fight other infections like COVID-19. So we're very hesitant um, to start chemotherapy unless it's extremely necessary in our patient population. 
Here in New York, over the last week or so, we have been seeing an increase uh, in the number of COVID-19 positive patients. Uh, thankfully, patients have not been as ill as previous, uh, six months ago or the initial onslaught here in the New York area two years ago. But it's still important uh, that we talk about, you know, uh, testing patients before starting the treatments, but also really talking about the importance here of vaccination. I'm proud here that in the New York area, our vaccination rate is 87%. But still, even with vaccines, it's important to be wearing masks and to be careful not to go to large gatherings, particularly if starting a treatment. So here at our center, we do test for COVID-19 prior to starting a treatment. Um, and if someone does develop COVID-19, I mean, we've seen it, we've been there before, most patients are gonna recover really well. If anybody has longer term pulmonary or lung toxicity or side effects from the viral infection, we often have a, we have a program here that can help manage those toxicities. So I would say overall, COVID-19 has affected our ability to see patients and, 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 and give the treatments here in the clinic. But overall, it has not changed our paradigm and how we think about this disease. I think getting back to the caregiver, the family member, um, a lot of times folks want to be there in the office with their loved one, with their family members. We've done a lot with telehealth and, and visits. Again, the infusions have to occur here in the cancer center, but we've been doing more and more inviting family members and groups to come in and be there with the patient in the office, if that's the patient's will and, and wish. So. As a caregiver, you can support your loved one, even if you can't be there physically in the office. There are ways that you can dial in, video in uh, to the visits. Uh, and again, you can be a huge asset, a huge uh, sense of support uh, for your family member, your loved one uh, going through the treatment. So really to summarize, lung cancer is a quite heterogeneous disease. Um, there are cancers that occur because of potential smoking. And in those types of cancers, it is the immunotherapy that really is going to do the heavy lifting. And there are those cancers that occur in folks who've never smoked, maybe from some environmental exposure. And in those folks, it's really identifying a target, an alteration that we can match patients to targeted therapy. So again, as a caregiver, please, it's important that you identify with your family member, your loved one, and also the team who's taking care of them, what is the mutation, what is driving uh, this uh, cancer in, in my loved one. And then during the COVID-19 era, please, you know, be safe, get vaccinated, uh, wear a mask. But I think on top of that, you can still be there uh, to support your loved one, either virtually or in person if allowed at, at your center. So I want to thank you for your attention uh, during this time and look forward to taking questions towards the end. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Sabari. That was really outstanding and a, such a stellar presentation. I think you set the stage for this entire program and really provided a lot of information to everybody in very uh, public-friendly way that everybody can understand. So I really appreciate that, too. Um, uh, so thank you. And I, I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. Um, they're already coming in. So there you have it. So thank you so much. Um, and our next speaker is Ms. Christine Calafiore. And uh, Ms. Calafiore will be addressing the role of the caregiver. Well, actually, she is our lung cancer program coordinator. So Ms. Calafiore is our lung cancer program coordinator at Cancer Care. And Ms. Calafiore will be addressing the role of the caregiver, coping on special occasions, birthdays, and holidays, managing family, partner, friends in the context of COVID-19, and self-care tips for coping with stress. 
It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Calafiori. Thank you, Dr. Messner. Um, as Dr. Messner mentioned, I'm Christine Calafiori. I'm the Lung Cancer Coordinator at Cancer Care. Over the last four years, I've worked closely with cancer patients and caregivers individually and in a group setting to provide emotional support and guidance. So thank you all for taking the time to be with us today on such an important topic. Caring for a person with cancer can be stressful for all people involved, including family, partners, friends, other loved ones, and for the person with cancer themselves. Caring for a person with cancer, um, especially lung cancer, has additional challenges, including stigma of the diagnosis, media messaging around smoking and lung cancer, and visual reminders of the diagnosis, even if your loved one's cancer was not caused by smoking. It's important to be aware of your feelings around the diagnosis, including the stigma of a lung cancer diagnosis as a caregiver. Please remember, as Dr. Sabari said, you only need lungs to have lung cancer. Caregiving can be challenging for many reasons, but one reason is that new stressors can arise throughout the cancer experience. Some common challenges caregivers experience can lead to stress and burnout, including financial strain, workplace issues, anticipatory grief, balancing caregiver responsibilities with personal responsibilities, and much more. Caregivers often don't realize that they are burnt out until it feels too late. Signs of burnout include getting sick more easily, difficulty concentrating, prolonged feelings of hopelessness, chronic anxiety, and impatience for the person that you're caring for. Feeling stressed and challenged and burnt out as a caregiver is not a sign of failure. It is a sign that there is a need for more self-care, coping skills, and utilizing your supports. We'll talk more about that in a little bit, but as we have some holidays coming up this spring and summer, I'd like to talk more on how we can manage special occasions as caregivers. Caring for someone with cancer is challenging in so many aspects of life, but it can feel heightened on special occasions, birthdays, and holidays. Depending on your loved one's treatment, there may be different ways that you need to celebrate to accommodate health concerns, such as being immunocompromised, fatigued, and physical and cognitive challenges. You may also note that your loved one may not be in the holiday spirit or have the opposite reaction of being insistent on doing something when it may not be something that they're up to or that they're capable of at this time. Please understand um, that it's important to seek to understand their experience and feelings so that you can work together to find a solution to commemorate events while not overburdening you as the caregiver. So you might want to be creative. Sometimes seemingly small things can make such a big impact, such as catering food instead of cooking it yourself, having a potluck, or looking at pictures and videos or telling stories with your loved one. I've worked with individuals who have created books or videos together to remember special occasions or trips when they're missing time with their family or missing traveling in the way that they did before the diagnosis and before the COVID-19 pandemic. Think about what would be in your creative wheelhouse and try that with your loved one. The past two years have brought particular challenges with COVID-19, as we all know. As caregivers, it brings other challenges when trying to keep yourself and your loved one as healthy as possible. Being a caregiver means that you may be the person who has to tell people that they are or are not allowed to come to your house because of health concerns. It may also mean not being able to see friends and family because of COVID-19 risk. Figuring out what you and your loved one and your treatment team feel is safe and what makes you feel safe in the context of COVID is important. And note that over time, your own safety boundaries may change. 
When you know your own safety boundaries, you'll be able to more effectively communicate this information to friends, family, and others. Some may not understand your precautions, and that's okay. You're doing it for you and for your loved one. Some things you may want to consider are having people test before coming to your home, keeping masks and sanitizer by your door, and uh, being with guests outside of the enclosed space of your home. Be mindful of physical distancing and let your guests know ahead of time if you're comfortable with any types of physical touch, such as hugging or sharing of items. Guidelines and variants continue to change with COVID. It's okay to change your mind about what you're comfortable with and express that information to your loved ones and your supports. Trying to manage and balance so many aspects of life as a caregiver can be stressful. Having some tools to cope with stress and taking care of yourself can be impactful. Caregiving is something you will learn to cope with and manage with time, but some days will pre prove to be more stressful than others. On any given day, remember to make time for yourself to do something that makes you feel good, even if it only takes a few seconds, and know that this might look different day to day, so don't feel discouraged if what worked yesterday isn't working today. It's important to start creating a toolbox of different hobbies, exercises, techniques, etc., that can keep you uh, that can help you with coping with stress and anxiety. Some things you may want to add to your toolbox is self-care techniques to practice, including journaling, creating routines, creating lists, progressive muscle relaxation, deep breathing, meditation, exercise, drawing, and other mindful practices. Think about what may have worked for you during other challenges in life, or try to notice times when you feel good and what activity you were doing before that or what you're looking forward to. Joining support groups or engaging in individual support are also important ways to reduce stress, anxiety, but also reduce feelings of isolation. You may also want to utilize informal supports like friends, family, coworkers, and neighbors to take some items off of your plate. All of these things can help to manage stress and promote caregiver resilience. Please keep in mind that Cancer Care has cancer support services for caregivers and resources including series for our patients and caregivers called Ways to Wellness to foster educational and experiential workshops for caregivers um, and our caregiver series called Mindful Moments, which allows for dedicated time for coping skills workshops specific to caregivers. I'll let Dr. Messner talk more about our other services later in this program. Thank you so much for your time today, and I'll turn this back over to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, um, Ms. Calafiore. Um, that was an outstanding presentation, stellar, actually, and just wonderful information for our participants. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. So thank you so much. Just a wonderful presentation. Thank you. And so very much focus for our caregivers on the call. Thank you. And our next speaker is Angela James, and Ms. James is Care, Co Care Navigator for the Longevity Foundation, and so she's our representative from the Longevity Foundation. And uh, Ms. James will be addressing Longevity Foundation's free programs and services, along with um, giving information about the Lung Cancer Helpline and their website as well. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. James. Thank you so much, Cancer Care and Dr. Mesner, for inviting me to join the program today. My name is Angela James, and I am a care navigator with the Longevity Foundation. Longevity is the nation's leading lung cancer nonprofit, 
and we're changing outcomes for people with lung cancer through research, education, and support. Longevity's initiative position us as thought leaders in the lung cancer advocacy community, providing programs and driving change for those with lung cancer today and in the future. People impacted by lung cancer can get help navigating their cancer from our website, our lung cancer helpline, and from survivor and caregiver mentors who have been where they are. We have peer-to-peer lifeline support programs that connect lung cancer patients, survivors, and caregivers to mentors to get and give advice, encouragement, and hope. We have virtual patient Zoom-up meetings four times a week, multiple private patient and caregiver groups online, and provide multiple ways for people to get involved in the fight against lung cancer. We do have online groups for different oncogene types, EGFR, KRAS, ALK, no mutation, et cetera, as well as for those diagnosed with small cell lung cancer. We also host multiple in-person events across the country to educate and support patients at the community level. We always want everyone to remember that anyone with lungs can get lung cancer. And we want patients and their caregivers and families to know that they don't have to go through it alone. Please visit us at www.longevity.org. That's L-U-N-G-E-V-I-T-Y dot org. Or you can call our helpline at 844-360-5864 to get connected. Thank you, Dr. Mesner. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. James. That was really outstanding and stellar as well. And what a wonderful resource. Some of you on the call, of course, may be familiar with the Longevity Foundation, but some of you may not. And if you're not familiar with it, please call their helpline, also their website, visit their website, and really take advantage of these amazing services that they offer um, for the lung cancer community. So thank you so much. Um, and um, I'm just going to say a few words um, uh, just going forward. Um, so I'd, I'd like to first start with the role of the long-distance caregivers. You know, um, before we had telehealth and telemedicine, we really didn't talk a lot about the long-distance caregivers. There are people who actually live, there are caregivers who live perhaps in other parts of the country or world. And um, they would be able to, of course, uh, correspond with the person with non-small cell lung cancer, the loved one, um, they might be able to send them a letter or a note, um, but now they actually can participate in some of the telehealth, telemedicine appointments with the patient's permission, and that means that um, they, their role can be extraordinary in, in helping uh, to take in information for patients. Also, they can be also very helpful in terms of really um, being supportive and, uh, and connecting with them virtually um, as well. It's really very important. So I think that um, that's a very important uh, component. And um, so for the people who are local caregivers to recognize that those long-distance caregivers can be a great resource. Um, and I also want to tell you a little bit about what research tells us about caregivers. So one thing about caregivers is they often, um, it, they're kind of put into the role. Um, so someone becomes ill and needs to have someone take care of them. And it's often someone, um, in the family, or it could be a partner or a friend, um, who steps up to the plate and says, um, they just kind of they take on that role. Um, and, uh, and caregivers also often tell us that they there are both rewards and risks of caregiving. Now, the risks are there are of course a lot of responsibilities, and 
um, and a lot of and also efforts to engage others in helping with the caregiving. But caregivers also re re report that they get a tremendous amount of rewards from caregiving, um, that although they may at times feel quite worn out by it, they also feel a great sense of reward in helping a family member, a friend, a partner with their with with coping with uh, non-smell cell lung cancer, any type of cancer actually, um, or any health issue that the person may have. Um, so um, when you think of caregivers, they are basically what research tells us is probably what we kind of all know is that they are they kind of often they're put into into that role to some extent. They're there, they step into that role, um, and then they. Um, and they can get a lot of support in their caregiving from others. And um, and and the art of a, of a caregiver um, in terms of performing that role is really to be able to engage others in the process of caregiving. And I think um, that is, we're probably going to talk about that a bit during the Q&A as well, is that often people have the question, like, I'm the only one taking care of this person but I have a family of others and they're not helping out. What can I do to engage them? So that's going to be a question I'm going to address during the Q&A part. And I also want to go over with you Cancer Care's free programs and services. So Cancer Care, um, like the Longevity Foundation, is a national organization, and we provide free, and primarily the services are delivered by oncology social workers, all of whom have a master's degree in social work, and um, they um, we have a close to 40 um, uh, social workers on staff, and they provide a range of services. So what are those services? Well, we do have the HOPE line, and many people call our 800 number. And for those of you who are on the call who are international, you can visit our website and post a question, and one of our staff will, of course, get back to you with your question, because there are resources throughout the world that, you can, that can be accessed in each country, and there are also some very global resources that will help people as well. So. Um, basically, um, those services include, first of all, our oncology social worker tends to answer the, the hope line. They're the ones who pick up the phone and say hello to you, and usually someone then identifies their problem or their issue, and the social worker will help them with that, and then explain to them all the other services. So what are those services? We do offer online support groups, um, and those support groups are, people really like them because they're, they actually happen not in real time, but any, you can post any time of the day or night, and they are all moderated by an oncology social worker. And then we have uh, support groups for specific types of cancer, so like lung cancer. We have support groups for lung cancer, people living with lung cancer, or caregivers, people with lung cancer. But we also have support groups for young adults, older adults, middle-aged adults, partners, spouses, family members. So we have different types of support groups. and um, quite a few of them actually. Um, if you go to our website, you'll be able to see all the different groups that we offer and determine which one might be a good fit for you. In addition, we do offer both practical, financial, and co-payment assistance. And that's very important. People have a challenge with a lot of um, financial issues. I've always been since the inception of Cancer Care 78 years ago. But with the pandemic, it's been even more harsh for people in terms of financial, getting, you know, all the financial services that people need. And so we have quite a range of financial services to offer you. In addition to that, we have a case management unit. So if we don't have the service you require, um, our case management staff will actually go with you virtually, take you to a resource. They won't just give you a list of places to call, but they'll actually go with you virtually 
and really get that need met that you have. And for many people, it has to do with food insecurity or not having enough money for food or for your payment for your home, either your mortgage or your rent. Um, so on other types of needs that people may have, that, that unit has been very, very important um, in terms of helping people. Now, in addition to that, um, we also have a patient assistance program. Uh, I'm sorry, our, our, our pet assistance program. And that program is for people who have a cat or a dog, and they're just not feeling well enough and don't have anyone to help them either walk their dog or change the litter box or, or don't have enough money for food for their um, um, their pet. Um, and so that program has been phenomenal in helping people with those very practical needs and very and allowing the person to maintain their pet because we know that these pets are very important in people's lives um, to some extent. That's really important. And we also offer really a chance to talk with our oncology social worker about your concerns and questions that you might have. We offer these workshops, about 75 of these per year, on both different types of cancer. Like today's program is focusing more on non-small cell lung cancer and for caregivers. And we also do them on different topics, like on just caregiving alone or survivorship. Um, and so, um, and those are all listed on our website. You can access that information. Um, and we also have a number of publications as well. So we have quite a few publications that you can access. So with that being said, um, it gives you a, a bit of a picture of all the different services we offer, a thumbnail sketch of them, and um, our both calling our Hopeline number or visiting our website will give you a much fuller picture of all those services. And we also do offer um, these wonderful um, uh, uh, wellness uh, uh, circles that um, Ms. Califori mentioned, um, and those are wonderful, um, both educational and support groups for people, and the people find them very, very helpful as well. So with that being said, um, before we go on to the q and I'm just going to ask you all just a few questions, um, actually five questions, and then it'll take about two minutes, and then we're going to go right on to um, the um, the Q&A, so get your questions ready, okay? So um, the first question is, and for those of you who are live streaming the program, you'll be able to see the questions and you'll be able to rate your answers. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the current standard of care for non-small cell lung cancer in the context of COVID-19 and its variants. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of caregiving, the caregiver's role in decision-making, and the challenges and opportunities in communicating with the healthcare team for a loved one with non-small cell lung cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of managing family and friends in the context of COVID-19 during special occasions, birthdays, and holidays. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now just two questions left. 
As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the role of the long-distance caregiver for a loved one living with non-small cell lung cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And then this will be the last question. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of stress management and self-care tips for managing the stress of caregiving. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. So I just want to thank everyone again for participating in these questions. It allows us um, to have um, to, to best tailor these programs and as we plan them in 2022, um, really taking into consideration your, um, your comments. So thank you so much. And now we have time for questions. I'm going to ask today to bring all of our speakers on board. And we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. And today we'll explain to you how to queue up for questions. Thank you, Dr. Messner. And ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then one on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. Okay, we have a question um, uh, for, um, for Dr. Sabari. Um, so this particular participant is interested in any information about treatment of stage 4B adenocarcinoma of the lung with negative PDL1 lignin. Any theories as to how Keytruder um, is helpful in spite of a negative PDL1? Yeah, it's a great question. So just to rephrase the question, in in folks who have stage four lung cancer whose PDL1 is negative, and remember, PDL1 is the cloak or the disguise on the cancer cell, preventing the immune system from recognizing and attacking the cancer as foreign. So normally our own immune system will recognize and attack things that are not supposed to be there, like bacteria, for example, right? Our body attacks it. We have a fever, chills, and then our body gets rid of it. Our white blood cells get rid of that infection. Our immune system gets rid of that infection. Um, similarly, uh, if you have a foreign cancer, right, or the cancer cells that look different from normal tissue, our immune system should recognize and attack that. But because cancers start from our normal tissues in the body, they have these cloaks or disguises on them. They're wearing a stop sign saying to the immune system, don't attack me. I'm normal. I'm supposed to be here. What the immunotherapy does is it can bind and remove this cloak or this disguise so that the immune system can rev up and better recognize and attack cancer. So in folks who have a PDL1 or a cloak or disguise that is 100%, the highest possible, immunotherapy works very well on its own. For folks who have cancer and the disguise is low, and the way I talked about it in the clinic is the cancer cells are naked, not disguised, the chances of immunotherapy working on its own is lower. It's still about 20 to 25%. And what we learn from that is it's not only the PDL1 expression that drives the process, as well as this PDL1 expression, this cloak or disguise is quite heterogeneous within a single tumor but also across, you know, the heterogeneity of disease in the body, right? If you have a lung mass and a liver mass, the immune system might recognize those two as different. 
Uh, and that's important. So immunotherapy still is a useful tool in folks who have a low or negative PDL1 expression, but I generally would recommend combining with chemotherapy. And really that's one of the huge unmet needs is folks who have low PDL1 expression who've had growth of their cancer on an immunotherapy like pembrolizumab, Keytruda, what are the next options? And, and we're really working hard on that in the clinic to develop the next generation of immunotherapy medications uh, for our patients. Oh, thank you. That's wonderful. I hope that's helpful to our participants and to all the participants on the call. And the concept of a cloaking device is really helpful to people to understand. And I have to say, in all the times we've done this program, I don't think anyone's used that term for any of our cancer programs. And so I, um, it's, it's a great term, and it makes it so much clearer to everybody. So thank you. Um, and um, a question from Ms. Calafori. Um, how can we get nutritious meals delivered? My father uh, no longer cooks and lives alone and relies on takeout often. Do you have any thoughts of um, ways that he can get nutritious meals? So there's definitely different programs available in different neighborhoods. Um, you know, one of the national ones is is really, you know, for um, for home delivery, the, the name of it right now is escaping me. Um, so I do apologize. Oh, fun, but a lot of people... Yes, yes, Meals on Wheels. Um, so that's definitely available in a lot of neighborhoods, um, depending on the age of the person and the um, their abilities. I recommend people contacting places like the Area on Aging Services in your area. Um, depending on the state, they're either available by county, city, um, so you can always check online by just Googling um, area on aging and the area where you live, and it should pop up for you. Um, you could certainly always contact Cancer Care for more um, directed assistance for us to be able to see if there's any other programs available in your area, um, so that way we can provide any additional information or support. Excellent. Thank you. Um... Excellent, um, and and um, I think it's an excellent point to just contact Cancer Care because we'll, our staff will definitely help with that. Um, so thank you, Ms. Calafori. Um, and um, so the question here, and I'm going to ask both. Um, I'm going to ask Ms. Calafori and um, Ms. James to address this one as well. Um, uh, um, the support groups for caregivers um, when a patient has EFGR exon 19 mutation specifically. So we may not have the specific type of support group, but um, Ms. James, do you want to comment on that? Um, support uh, Our support groups for the um, specific EGFR oncogene? Yep, yes. We, do, we hold a Wednesday oncogene groups. Um, our EGFR support group is the first Wednesday of each month. Um, and you can go to longevity.org under the I am a caregiver or patient, and you can sign up for these. We'll, we'll send you a confirmation email, and um, it is usually 12 p.m. Eastern time, and then, of course, that's 11 Central and 9 uh, Pacific time. Yeah, I want to second the cancer care and the longevity EGFR or driver groups. There's also a, a mm -hmm. patient-driven community group called the EGFR resistors. Uh, they're a huge powerhouse in this disease, not only in education, but actually driving the science 
to develop new therapies. Uh, they actually have um, obtained tissue from themselves and other patients uh, to be studied in laboratories all throughout the country. So a huge amount of effort and work by this group, the EGFR resistors. So a lot of opportunity uh, to engage uh, with this community. And would you, um, after the program, would you email me the, um, the information about that? And then I'll actually, we'll send it out to everybody as well. Sure, would love to. It's egfrcancer.org. And again, uh, no affiliation or anything. It's just my patients have benefited tremendously from this group. Okay, so we'll, okay, so everyone has that now. And I should mention everybody that after today's program, well, actually tomorrow, you'll all be getting a Survey Monkey evaluation. So it's an evaluation of the program, but also will include any of the um, websites we gave out, um, uh, you know, helpline numbers um, we've given out, any information that we think would be um, helpful to you as well. So when you get the evaluation, we do like you to complete it, of course, but we also will include in there um, additional information that you can all access and use. So thank you so much, Dr. Sabari, for mentioning that. Gosh, you really know everything. This is fantastic. Okay. So we definitely have a lot of research. I don't know if this California, if you want to add anything to that or if there's any specific lung cancer groups that we have that you want to highlight? Or... So as um, Dr. Messner had mentioned earlier, Cancer Care does also offer online support groups for lung cancer patients and for lung cancer mm -hmm. caregivers. Um, as she mentioned also, they are available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and they are monitored by at least one oncology social worker from Cancer Care. Um, what's nice about the online support groups is if you're looking to have a separate topic about, say, um, a certain mutation that you can actually make a new folder for your specific discussion. Um, so that way, if there are people that, you know, are maybe KRAS or EGFR or any of the other mutations, um, that they could create their own discussion section. Um, so that way people might be able to have more, um, more targeted discussions about that specific um, mutation that they're discussing. That's fantastic. And actually, there is no rule about you can only join one group. So you can join the group, the Longevity Foundation, the Cancer Care Group, the group that Dr. Safari mentioned. You can join all of them and then, you know, see which one really meets your needs, or you can stay on all of them and, you know, not required to attend all the time, but you can if you want to. And as a caregiver, it does give you all this extra support. So an extra support is really invaluable, particularly if you can post on it any time of the day or night, or you can really, you know, it becomes one of those, um, that's, that's also very helpful to people as well. Um, mm -hmm. And so we have um, another question for Dr. Sabari. Um, um, how long does Tegreso usually work on lung cancer before progression starts? Yeah, so that's a tough question. I mean, you know, all the targeted therapies in uh, Tegreso or osimertinib is a, a third-generation inhibitor of the gene EGFR. Uh, and uh, it works very, very well. Uh, and, you know, the median or, or sort of, you know, average time it works is about two years. But I've seen folks who've been on that medicine for far longer. And I've also seen folks who've been on the medicine shorter. And it really depends on the heterogeneity of the tumor. And we talked earlier about doing liquid biopsy and tissue biopsy to try to understand what's driving the cancer. 
And in folks who only have an EGFR mutation, whether it be the exon 19 deletion, that's the most common, or the L858R, less common, but still, you know, these make up 20 to 25% of all people with lung cancer. Um, if you have only those alterations, people tend to do better on the medication over some time. But if you have other alterations or the cancer is more complicated or complex, and you can figure this out with multiple biopsies or with plasma, liquid biopsy, you know, sometimes we need to think about combinations. And what we've really been thinking about over the last three to five years is how to get the osimertinib, the Tigriso, to work longer and better for our patients. So lots of combination strategies now available um, in the clinical trial space, and we hope to be moving that to standard of care in the next one or two years. But unfortunately, all targeted therapies don't work forever because of this concept of resistance, meaning we're selectively pressuring the cancer to select out for clones. So talking to your physician, getting scans every three months or so, letting your doc, your team know if you're not feeling well, that's critical in understanding whether the medicine's working. If you're feeling well and you're taking the medication, most of the time this drug is working for you, uh, but if not, it's important that you talk to your team. Excellent. Thank you. And um, this is a question from Ms. Um, Calafiori. Um, how, how can I contain my concerns and anxiety while at the same time being extremely positive with my husband um, who is dealing with lung cancer? Um, could you comment on that? It's a very common experience for caregivers to want to shield the person with cancer from their own fears or being able to manage the person with cancer's fears themselves. So it is something to try to figure out how to balance of what's going to work specifically for you. For some people, it might be having an open discussion about your concerns with the person with cancer, especially if you share some of their concerns, to be able to normalize that with them and with yourself about how you're feeling. And it is also about figuring out what types of coping skills might work for you with being able to manage stress and worry, whether that's doing something that um, that helps you feel good physically, like meditation or progressive muscle relaxation or exercise, to figuring out something else that might feel um, beneficial to you, like some people prefer to organize or create lists so that way they feel like they're a little more in control, maybe when even attending appointments with their loved one, to be able to ask questions with them. Um, even if I know in a lot of places you're still not able to go in person with your loved one, that it still might be something that you need to attend virtually. So seeing if you're able to be able to be on a FaceTime or phone call um, with the person with cancer when they go for appointments, so that way you can have some input as well. Um, and being able to figure out um, with those lists what types of questions you want to ask and be able to hopefully quell some of those fears that way. And of course, then reaching out for support, whether that's through some informal channels of support like friends, families, neighbors, coworkers, to pick up on some things that maybe they could be able to do for you, like grocery shopping, grabbing a prescription, um, picking up or dropping off a child to you know, football practice, whatever it might be, of just figuring out some ways to be able to ease some of the tasks that are on your plate. So that way you have time to be able to focus on things that you need to do for yourself and things that might need to be done for your loved one. 
and of course then reaching out for formal support as well, whether that's contacting cancer care or longevity for some support, um, speaking to the social worker at your local cancer center, um, or just reaching out um, to local supports in your community for some sort of counseling or support group supports to have another place to be able to vent to. Excellent. Thank you. Excellent. Um, I hope that's helpful to our um, participants and to many of the participants on the call. Um, oh, excellent. And this will be our last question. I'm going to direct it to Dr. Sabari, but others may want to weigh in on it. My mother-in-law is doing her annual get-together and has invited our family. I am worried about my own mother who lives with us and is being treated for lung cancer. Is it risky to visit my husband's family? What should I tell my mother-in-law if we do not choose to go. If you could comment, probably it's a question that people ask you all the time, you know, what should they do? And so if you could just set some parameters here, um, that would be helpful for all of our participants because we are yeah. coming into a time of year when people often want to get together and yet, so. It's a really difficult question. And I think that in the COVID-19 era, we've seen these sort of ebbs and flows, right, where, you know, Things were really, really hot in the sense of the, the you know, positivity rate in the community. Uh, we would tell family members not to get together, right? To really, you know, sit this this holiday out or maybe do a virtual get together if possible. Um, we know that folks with lung cancer, especially folks on chemotherapy, are at slightly increased risk of contracting the virus. And if contracting the virus, obviously having a more difficult time, you know, fighting the the, the infection the COVID-19 infection. So my, my theory is it's always better to be safe than sorry, but at the same time, you do need that personal human touch in the sense of, you know, seeing loved ones and, and seeing family members. So if you do need to get together, I would say limit it uh, to a certain number uh, and make sure that those folks there are safe or vaccinated, potentially test before getting together with a rapid test. You can find these at any CVS or Dwayne Reed or anywhere, Walgreens, um, you know, and, and make sure that if you're having any symptoms or if anybody tests positive, uh, it's better not to attend that gathering for, 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 for loved ones. And, you know, you can explain that when, you know, you're inviting folks over, you know, state, you know, if they know about mom, great. If not, you know, state that just for the safety of everyone, we want to make sure that everyone's tested and everyone's safe. And I think that that allows folks to come who are, are, are protected, but also, you know, shows you, you know, whether folks really care about mom and care about you to make sure that you're all safe. Really difficult, though, difficult discussion, difficult family dynamic as well uh, during the last few years here. Excellent. Thank you. Anyone else want to weigh in on that? Ms. California or Ms. Um, some other things that um, that we've talked about within different support groups and, you know, individually with individuals is just figuring out some creative ways to be able to manage things, too. So whether, you know, for a get together with family, sometimes there's a lot of shared food. So it might even be considering like, you know, different high touch areas of the person who might have a more compromised immune system of them being able to grab and, um, you know, and touch things first or, you know, bring their own things as well. Um, you know, having distance seating, different things that might be able to reduce different risks in addition to what Dr. Sabari said. Um, you know, so just figuring out what you're comfortable with as well, um, what your other loved ones might be comfortable with and figuring out um, some ways to be able to make everyone feel comfortable with this situation. 
Um, Because it's definitely, it's a challenging thing. And we know, especially after two years and possibly being separated from your loved ones for an extended period of time, that you do definitely want to get together. So, you know, definitely talk to your treatment team. What are the risks? What are the things that you can be concerned about for the area where you live? Um, And then also have that family discussion of this is what we're concerned about. Maybe it's not just about COVID and it's also about other health issues too that are going on. So just being able to be safe on all fronts and be open about what people are are comfortable with um, and knowing what your parameters are as far as physical touch and sharing items too. Excellent, thank you. Um, and Ms. James, do you want to add anything as well? Yes, definitely. Um, and of course, if um, weather permits, you know, outdoor, Outdoor activities uh, would be better, even if it's in the backyard. Also, uh, maybe even designating one or just two people with gloves to prepare the plates for everyone. Um, That's something that we like to let people know. And staying up to date with your vaccines and your boosters. And um, you generally don't have to wear a mask outdoors, but if if someone is really at a, a risk for illness, and there are many people, it would be okay to wear a mask indoors as well. And of course, we always say speak to your healthcare provider. Excellent. Well, I have to say this has been an extraordinary program. I, I, I must say we have done these programs before, but this one, uh, I have to say, tops them all. And I, I, um, I want to acknowledge that. I want to thank our speakers. I want to thank our participants. Um, the, the question and answer period has been quite wonderful, actually, fantastic, phenomenal, good questions and we hope they helpfully answers. However, um, there are many more questions in queue, and so I do want to address this um, there are, so that we, we could go on for another hour or so because there are so many questions. And so I want to kind of address all of you, for those of you who asked a question, for those of you who are in queue waiting to ask a question, and for those of you who have a question that you're forming that you'd like to ask, we'd like you to take what you've learned today and go back to your treating healthcare team and ask them or any question, and what you've learned today is that every question that you ask is important, and our speakers were really very, um, said it was a wonderful question and really wanted to address your question um, and really help you. And the nice thing about your treating healthcare team is that they actually know you the best. They have all your medical records, they know everything about you, and that's very important, um, both in terms of your non-small cell lung cancer, but also in terms of other health issues that you may have, what we call comorbid, or other health issues that you might be coping with as well. Um, and that's true for caregivers too. They, uh, you know, they may also have some other um, underlying health problems as well. Um, and so um, really take everything back to your healthcare team and see your asking questions today as kind of a role play for going back to your team, team and asking them questions. Remember your healthcare team consists of many people. You have your medical oncologist, but you have many other people on that team. You have an oncology nurse, oncology social worker, patient navigator, financial navigator, just a lot of different people. So whatever your question might be, um, if you're if you're a senior oncologist, you can raise that question with them, and then they will ad- bring you to someone on that team that can help you. In addition to the resources we're going to give you at cancer, for, you know, other resources that you can contact from Cancer Care, um, but just so you know that that's um, something that is an uh, is a is a resource for all of you that your own healthcare team. And I would not want anyone to leave today's program feeling you're alone. I want you to know that you're part of a community of support, and that 
we're all here to help you. And you just seem to have to ask your question and people are very eager to help you, both your healthcare team and the organizations that you'll be getting information from, from Cancer Care will send you all that information. So again, I want to thank you all for your participation today and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes today's workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.